Welcome to How to Decorate from Ballard Designs, a podcast all about the trials and triumphs of decorating and redecorating your home. Each week, we'll help you unleash your inner decorator. I'm Caroline, and I'm on the marketing team. And I'm Taryn, and I'm a product designer. And I'm Liz. I head up the Ballard Creative Team. We're your host. Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world. Plus, we'll answer a listener question at the end of each show. So don't forget to send them to podcast at ballarddesigns.net. Yes, we love answering them. Now, on with the show. Our guest today needs no introduction, legendary interior designer Bunny Williams. For 35 years, she's built a reputation for refined, timeless, and welcoming homes for her clients. And she has her own eponymous furniture line and now her eighth book published with Rizzoli, Life in the Garden. Bunny, welcome to the show. It's always lovely to have you and thanks for taking time to chat with us. Well, thank you so much for asking me. I'm such a fan of Ballard and everything you do. So I'm absolutely thrilled to be um, talking to you all today. Well, anyone who's followed you is probably very aware of your love for gardens. You know, you have a you have a gardening book called um, what is, I believe it's uh, Garden Style. Yes, Garden Style. You talk about your garden in your just best-selling design book, An Affair with the House. You've done you've been on panels talking about gardens. You have a garden, you know, some garden accessories that you make with us. So you know, it's certainly something that you are known for and celebrated, um, you know, for being an expert. And so I was curious what inspired you to write your latest book and what you had to say um, more on the topic. Well, what's interesting is that I think when you when you really read the book cover to cover, it's called Life in the Garden. And I think that um, when I look back on it, when I bought this house 40 years ago, um, I bought it because I wanted to have a garden. Uh, I knew nothing about gardening at the time. And I actually bought a um, garden plan from Wayside Gardens. And they sent me the plan and the plants. And I dug this kind of hole in the ground that they said was this big by this big. And I put the plants in. So that was how I started gardening with no knowledge. But I think the underlying and the thing I've realized, and it's why I wanted to do this book, though I've done a book on this house before, I said what I really wanted to create was a home and the there is life in this garden, but it starts inside. So the book is, yes, about the garden, but it's about entertaining. It's about family. It's about, you know, there are no recipes, but it's, you know, how I set the table, how I think about entertaining um, the wedding I had for my nephew parties we've given, because I think that, yes, the garden is very important. But it's also the life in the garden and the life in the home that I wanted to capture in this book. Um, It's so revealing and you share so much of yourself in it. And that really made it a joy to read because I felt like we we got to know you more through it. And, um, you know, you talk about your childhood in Virginia and how many things, you know, how many changes you've made to your house that really kind of grew out of things you remembered from your childhood. Um, And so maybe you could share a little bit about that background with our listeners, maybe who aren't familiar about your, you know, upbringing in Virginia. What was great about my growing up in Virginia is we lived out in the country and we lived on a road where there were a number of cousins who lived there. And my best friend, who was not a cousin, but lived down the road, 
And it was a country road in those days, two lane country road. And everybody kind of dropped in on each other. And I can remember, I can remember my, um, you know, parents all of a sudden, somebody drives in the driveway and it's, you know, fantastic. Um, somebody's coming over. So people thought of dropping in and you were always ready for them. You know, there was always some cheese straws or uh, things that you could bring out. It, hosp hospitality was just something that you took for granted because you knew how to do it. Um, I think that um, I loved that. And I, I loved, I love the feeling of that. I love the friendliness of it. And also my, my mother, um, my godmother, her, her siblings, they love to entertain. I mean, when I was growing up in Virginia, there were no restaurants because you couldn't buy um, alcohol by the drink. So you, you know, it, it wasn't, it was illegal to serve alcohol in the public place. So everybody entertained at home and you cooked, you set the table um, and people would show up for these kind of wonderful cocktail buffets that were every age group, children, grandparents, Sunday lunches with family. Um, and I loved that. I mean, I loved the different ages. And I think that when I came to finally be able to buy my own house, I wanted to have that sense of openness and hospitality. I love how you talk also about some of the similarities from the home that you grew up in that you found on the property there. And then some of the other things that you've kind of built around that. Um, and speaking about how really how garden is an extension of your home and that there are different rooms that you can create outside. I'm wondering what space in your garden has had the most impact or brought the most joy to you? Uh, you know, people ask me that all the time. And, you know, it, it maybe it's the newest thing or um, I just get such a joy on a, you know, beautiful morning of getting up and walking the whole property. And the garden's quite different. I mean, there's some very formal parts. There's a woodland garden. My newest uh, addition is a piece of land at the end that I call the birdhouse village. And I put my, my collection of antique birdhouses in it. And it's just got one grass that is covers the ground with paths that, that go through it, grass paths, very simple. But um, I think, you know, I don't spend hours in one place. What I love is to walk through them all, sit down, I've got plenty of benches um, and really sit and kind of ponder the light and you know, what's in bloom, what's looking good. Um, so I don't think that um, I have one spot that I love more than another. I mean, they, they really are all different. Well, it's, it's interesting when, you know, when anybody has you know, if they're buying a house or whether it's a small house or a big house, you do have to keep the start with the plan. Where do you park your car? How do you get to the front door? How do you want people to enter the house? You have to think of what's happening outside. You know, do you have a door that leads outside? And maybe that's where you want to have your terrace. You know, you need, you, it's always starts, garden to me, garden design starts on the inside so that when you open a door you're in a are you on a porch are you on a terrace um if do you have a door out of the kitchen do you want to eat outside so it's the flow between inside and outside that kind of starts the garden design and i think 
whether you are want to ever be a real gardener like I do, you still need a plan. And it doesn't mean you have to put in perennial borders, but you know, you may want some boxwood or some shrubs, cascading roses, something simple, uh, but you need to know where to put them. And I think a lot of people rush off to the nursery in the spring and they think, oh, it's this beautiful plant. Look at this. Oh, doesn't this look wonderful? And they put it in the car and they get home and they don't know what to do with it. So uh, starting with the plan, I think everybody should hold their horses and really kind of map out how they're going to make the outside connect to the inside. Yeah, that was that I think was kind of my because, you know, in the book, you really sort of go through um early mistakes you made, which I think is so helpful to, for those of us who have made some gardening mistakes, I'm like, okay, Bunny has too. This is encouraging. Yeah, that was pretty inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but do you recommend planning out like your entire property or just doing like a small area at a time? You do a small area at a time. I did all of this. I did not plan the woodland garden. I didn't, I didn't even mm -hmm. exist. So this has evolved literally over 40 years or 35 years. Um, I knew that I started with the sunken garden because that was off my house. I could see it from the screen porch. It also was the only place that was flat and I could contain it with a stone wall. So, you know, I kind of started there um, and I didn't get it right because it didn't quite connect back to the house. You know, now I've, I've learned I've learned this and I've made, you know, I've, I've corrected my mistakes, which I talk about in the book. But um, I think you don't have to think of the whole property because, frankly, you probably can't do it all. Um, and I think if you start with the immediate house and what's around you, then you once you get that done and settle, you, you look behind, go, you know, you look further and say, oh, do I have a view or Maybe I need to plan something to block out a not attractive view. You know, you can, my garden doesn't have long views. So I've created my views. I've created uh, what one should look at. And, uh, but I don't think you, I think sometimes it's overwhelming. I, I mean, some people, you know, have a big budget and they can do it all at one time. But for me, it's been fun to change things and move it around and have it develop over a period of time. I guess then too, if you you know are still learning, you are only making maybe a mistake in a small space instead of a big space, and you can correct it in the next iteration. Well, also, if you're doing the gardening yourself, gardening takes a lot of time. I mean, mm -hmm. you you know, when I started out, I would get to the country on the weekends. I was still working in New York, and I had these two you know fifty foot long perennial borders. I was digging and deadheading and cutting back and staking you know, for two days on Sunday, I could hardly move when I got in the car to go back to New York. But, you know, gardening is a garden is a live thing. It's not. Um, and that's something everybody should think about in how much gardening do they want to do? Can they afford help? Um, and there are ways of having a pretty garden that are very that are much simpler, you know, with shrubs and things like that. But you've got to understand and really think about how much do you want to do? For someone that's that's more on the novice side and, you know, 
wants a beautiful garden space, but maybe is not super confident in their skills. Are there certain things that you, like certain tasks in the garden that you think are manageable for beginners and certain things that you would recommend, like if you can afford it to hire out, like, you know, do you do the weeding or do you like prefer the plant? You know what I mean? Like, what are the tasks that you think one can well, do on their own? I actually, it's funny. Um, I loved planting. I loved digging a hole in the ground and putting it in and watering it and nurturing. But also I love weeding. Weeding is a very therapeutic thing. My problem now is my, my borders are so big. I can't even get back in to weed them. So I love weeding in the woodland. I love weeding is very, it's like cleaning your house. You know, you all of a sudden you start to weed and you know, the vegetable garden, which is much cleaner, um, is easy to weed. And, you know, you spend an afternoon pulling these little things out and it looks so much neater and you're kind of got a basket of weeds and you put in the compost. So it's soothing. It's, you know, gardening is, a, if you love it, is a very soothing thing to do. In the winter, I love to go up to the greenhouse and repot plants and take a cutting and, you know, just listen to the music and the dogs sit on the warm floor and it's it's just very relaxing but i love i don't mind getting my hands dirty and i love the feeling that you put this little plant in the dirt and then lo and behold you nurture it it grows i think that's my problem i i love flowers and i love plants i love enjoying them but i don't want to do the weeding <laughs> It's hard. I you need know, to fall in love with it somehow. No, no, no. You, it's, you know, gardeners are, um, you know, it, it's something, it's, it is, a, you know, going out with your, you know, your clippers and your seconders and, you know, deadheading and, you know, walking around. It's like tidying up your house. And I mm -hmm. still love doing it. I don't do it. Certainly, I don't take care of this garden all by myself. It's a bunch of people help me and make it. I mean, Robert Reimer is our head gardener and he's much more knowledgeable. He's a much better gardener than I am. He's, you know, he's skilled. Um, and I've learned so much from him. Mm -hmm. But that's one thing everybody should realize is don't bite off more than you can chew. And that's when a plan helps you make your property look organized. But it doesn't have to have complicated flower beds. Mm -hmm. You know, it can mine. Look at my hedges. Look at the simplistic things that you can put in and create a space. Uh, and maybe your flowers are just in a pot, you know, they're not in a big bed. So I would say to anybody who's really thinking about it, be sure of what you can maintain. Yeah. And I, I love that you, you do have a garden that really is just all pots. And so how do you find the right, pot for the right plant because I think that there are some I, I keep hearing some people that are like very anti clay pots and then there are other people who are more like about the resin pots or what what is your favorite and how do you find the right pot well for for all of my smaller plants I love clay I mean I always have uh, I loved handmade ones I don't buy I try to find I have a lot of a lot of old pots that are all handmade. Um, there are wonderful potters in my area that hand throw pots. So I don't buy those 
clay press pots at you know the Home Depot. I don't like those. I don't like the color color of them. Um, I I think that you know I you know I'm always looking at you know I've got some French terracotta pots that are stri painted stripes that are glazed. Some aren't glazed. So I've put together. You see the pictures in the book of a, a wonderful collection of pots. I just think the clay it it holds moisture but it also gives a better balance um, to the plants than, um, and I don't really like plastic, so I try not to have any plastic pots. On, on certain big containers, you know, if you look at the garden, there are a lot of things outside, and I have to, because of the winter, I have to have um, things that will sustain frost, like lead containers or metal things, things that I can leave outside because I can't leave big terracotta pots outside and a lot of our you know my big magnolias have to go in the greenhouse because they're not even hardy for a winter climate probably this winter they would have been fine but i have to we move things around a lot and collecting pots is just you know you can find sometimes you go to a yard sale and somebody's just thrown away you know 12 wonderful old handmade pots and they you know so i'm always looking for them well, I noticed that ornamentation and structure is such a huge part of your garden and something that I, I guess I never really paid all that much attention to, but, you know, latticework and, um, you know, a pergola and the different types of, um, you know, stone, you have like that beautiful stone around your pool. And it seems like adding structure is something that you've done really successfully. And I was curious if you could talk about that a little bit. And is that something that you think your interior design background brought to your garden? Or is that just something you sort of picked up while you were traveling? Oh, I definitely think that my interior design background, you know, I, I've been working and, you know, doing elevations and floor plans and, you know, looking at paper. And that's what I'm saying is that I think you have to think of the ground, just like you think of an empty room. It's, um, you know, how, how do you move around? And I, I think that definitely think the interior design, you know, the designing part of floor plans and things made me think differently on the outside. I also was, you know, I've spent my life looking at gardens and, um, you know, when I was a kid, we used to go, my mother would take me to Virginia Garden Week and, you know, you looked at all these brick paths and gardens. So it was kind of, and you walked around them. I mean, you just didn't, there wasn't just a garden stuck in the middle of a grass. There were walkways and plans. And I, I think I kind of took that for granted. And I was in my 20s and I did, I went to England to look at gardens. And the first time I went to Sissinghurst and I thought, wow. I mean, here's a very complicated garden, very big, but it was all about these rooms, the garden rooms, these plans, and you knew where to go. You were, you, you walked through them and then you could enjoy the garden because you didn't have to think about how do I get from here to there? And I think that's always something very important to think about is, um, where do you park your car? How do you get out of the car with your groceries to your house? What's the path? I, and I think that you're, you start to have to make choices of materials. And for me, I like to look around to what is native to my area. What looks good 
in the northwest corner of Connecticut. We have these beautiful stone walls. So obviously, stone walls look like they belong. Um, old bricks looked like they were belong because there were many houses had brick foundations. So, you know, my front path is, you know, wonderful old bricks. Um, and I think people shouldn't go off and, you know, put, um, you know, white bricks unless you've got a modern house in Arizona. Um, so you have to think of, you know, it's even like, what's the color of gravel? You know, you say gravel, you think it's one thing. Well, I ordered one time I ordered a load of gravel for a walkway and I got there. It was all white. They just sent me ground up limestone white. And I thought I was getting gray gravel. So every decision you make, you have to really be thorough about what your choice is going to be. I I feel like your your garden is it's it's so planned out. I love how there are separate rooms. I have a much smaller space. So I I sort of struggle with figuring out how to divide it up because it's already already so small. So I'm curious, you know, what you would recommend for that? Should like if you kind of have like, you know, a front lawn and a back yard, you know, a back lawn, like do you do you do you split those up? more into smaller garden spaces or do you just kind of let them be the room that they are i guess like just i would let them be the rooms they are because um you know the average house that has a backyard um it's very nice to have what i call um negative space so say there's you know a grassy area that kids can play on or you can have a party and then maybe you plant the perimeter um Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to have, you know, maybe you do it with some trees and underneath of it, there are flowering shrubs that can give you color. It's also fun to go out and cut shrubs for the house um, and and not, as I say, not divide it up and make it too busy. Now, again, you may say, well, I want flowers. Well, suppose off the back of your house, you've got a terrace, grow some of the flowers, do, you know, in pots. I mean, I grow these wonderful containers all summer of petunias and things that are in flower. You know, you could put anything in there and that could be your flowers for the season. Again, to think of the maintenance. I always say, think of the maintenance and the front of the house. Again, if you, do you have a walkway to the front door? Do you go in the front door? What's the, what's the path? Maybe the path has a beautiful edging of a box or, you know, something to just kind of formalize it. And maybe the front of the house has, you know, a beautiful specimen tree or something to make, to have a plan, but to keep it simple. I feel like I've done a little bit of of that. And I, what I'm gathering is like, I need to go, I need to do more of what I'm doing, like on a more expansive, you know, mm-hmm. way. So I, that, that's helpful. Like, having like zones almost like you might in a living room where it's it's still one room but like here's where your bar is okay this is where my this is like my sunniest spot so this is where i'm going to plant my more like flowers that need sun and i'll sure make a destination around that sure are there any things that you believe in not doing in a garden or things that you don't you know think make sense well i think that one of the hardest things to get right is if you're going to do a a big perennial border because you've got to think of color and shape and i think that 
to me, I'm because I maybe because I'm a new designer, but I I very much care about relationships of color. So I wouldn't, you know, I think if people are, you know, that's when you have to be very careful when you go to the nursery that you really make sure that the flocks you're buying or the delphinium or whatever you're buying is the color you want it that goes with the plant that's adjacent to it. And that is very difficult because you're often buying plants that are not in bloom and you don't know exactly what the color is. Um, and I've made mistakes that way. I've gotten something and I thought it was one color and it's, you know, it came into bloom and it was, you know, too deep a color or a color I didn't like. So I just get rid of it. So I think, um, I do think when you have a lot of flowers, you want a harmony of colors and not every color put together because it's not going to work. You wouldn't do that on the interior anyway. And, you know, as I say, I think if you start gardening without a plan, you're going to get into trouble. And, you know, if I didn't, if I would, I would not buy anything until I at least got some structure. So when I go to the nursery, I know where I'm going to plant what I go for a mission. A lot of people go to the nursery and I see them just stick things in the ground. And once they're big, I'm like, why that tree shouldn't be in that place. And I think a lot of people make that mistake of being impulsive about wanting to plant something without understanding what's going to happen in five years. That's very true. I'm totally guilty of that. And then this winter, I, I hit the Baker Creek heirloom seed catalog. Oh, and I know. Now, yeah. So now I'm starting seeds. And at least you get to see what's going to, what color it's going to yes. be on the packaging. But yeah, it it's hard not to be impulsive in the garden, though, mm-hmm. because it's all just so hopeful. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, I always think the mistake isn't that bad. I mean, you know, you buy a young plant right. and it's... um you know, it's not going to break the bank if you don't like it or you move it around. Sometimes mm-hmm. I've, I had a, I've had I've planted something that I didn't dislike the plant, but I just like the color that I put it next to. So I dug it up and put it with something where I felt the color harmony was better. That is a wonderful. Oh, I just find that so like not rewarding is really not the right word, but like if, if it's not doing well somewhere and you move it and then it like thrives, you're like, oh my gosh, I cracked the code. Well, <laughs> and, did something that's, right. and that's also, you know, you have to take in consideration soil and light. Um, and I probably the most difficult garden, part of my garden that was the most difficult to create was my woodland garden because, um, I started it and I was really, really naive and I didn't, I don't know. I thought, oh, mountain laurel grows all over Connecticut. It's so beautiful. Well, it grows on the other side of the Houstonic River, but on my side where we have all this lime, it doesn't grow. So I planted 20 um, mountain laurels. They all died. Uh, So then I was like, okay, what's going on here? And I realized that I needed to understand the soil. I needed to understand this the native woodland to see what was going to grow and thrive and i had to educate myself a little bit more and so did you bring in the professionals to help you do all the soil testing and uh i sent it off to, i didn't bring okay. it, i just sent it off to the university and got my soil tested and i read everything i could i mean i've never 
had a professional there. I've sort of done it myself, but, you know, I read, you know, Ken Drews writes about woodland gardens and dry woodland gardens, which mine was. So, you know, I read, you know, everybody was writing about the subject to try to, um, you know, learn more. And um, finally, and also I had, you know, one thing I realized is that um, I think when I started out, I thought a woodland garden, you know, I planted too many plants. I planted too many things. If you go in the woods, it's much more native. It's so much simpler. So the, my beginning woodland garden, which is really very pretty now, but it's overplanted. I mean, it's more of a shade garden than I would call it a woodland garden. As I've developed the property, I have kept the newer part much more native and um, only grow the things that you would find on a woodland floor. Okay, I don't recall you talking about this in the book, but, but I could be wrong. But what do you do about animals? Because I am having... I'm fence. I'm okay. Com- oh, I have a huge 10-foot mm. high deer fence around all the property. Okay. I could not have this garden without that. I was going to say that that is my problem right now. Deer. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. They're everywhere. Um, and I'm very... The, the property is uh, quite lucky in the fact that on the back and the two sides are all, there's enough trees that I could just, um, I could really just staple or to the trees, mm. this mesh, it's a roll, it comes as a, as a roll and it's 10 feet tall. So you really don't wow. see it. The front of the property has a, has a board fence and on top of that board fence is our electric wires. So I look a little bit like a prison camp, but <laughs> uh, I can't help it. I planted like probably a dozen wild roses and kept thinking, why are these not growing? Why are they unhappy? And then realized it was deer, but the deer were, were out like in dark. So I, oh, yeah. I never saw them. And so, yeah. It's tough. It is really tough. And there are more of them. The rabbits are the ones that I have to keep out of the vegetable garden. And again, we've fenced it, dig the wire fence down in the ground mm. because you know, they'll just eat every single thing that comes up. Yeah. Do you, I mean, yeah, you, you gotta like, do you chase them out? Like, um, what is it? Uh, Mr. McGregor? Mr. Right? McGregor. Yes. Well, you try to keep them out. Yeah. Uh, you try to keep them out. And we have a cat that gets the voles. The voles oh, are good. often because mm-hmm. they dig underground and they get the roots. So all of a sudden you're looking over and you're like, why isn't that growing? And you realize the bowls have been in there. So mm-hmm. we try to have a cat that helps to take care of that. Well, so it's early February. Um, that means that you're probably gearing up for a planting season soon. So what is your, what does your, like your planting season look like? And what are you planning for your garden in the coming year? Well, what's, you know, because the garden's rather set actually in the fall, we have to plan late summer. Mm, we have okay. to plan the tulips and the color for the uh, what is called the parterre gardens because we have to put those bulbs in. So some of that's already planned out uh, later. This time of year, um, I'm looking, you know, for the unusual annuals for the cutting garden, and you know, I have sources that um, actually we have um, a wonderful uh, place near us and. They grow incredible vegetables 
and they're growing some of our flowers. So like you, I get seeds and I try to get, we grow some of them, but um, there are a couple of wonderful uh, nurseries around us that have greenhouses. So, um, you know, all the, you know, one of the, in the parterre garden, we have these zinnias and cause it's only like three kinds of plants. So we have salvias and zinnias. So we need a ton of zinnias. So they grow them for us. I mean, I can't, I can't find that many just at a garden center. Um, but you know, the hard thing is, uh, and it's also doing the containers. I often get out lots of the, you know, the troughs and the containers and put them in on the walls in mm. places I want them. And then that's when I have fun going out to see, you know, what's new. Is somebody introducing a new, you know, striped petunia or something like that? And that I do with, you know, just as soon as the nurseries are open, I'm there. What what are your favorite? You said you like you plant the, your tulips in the in the fall. Where are your? Do you have? Do you order like from like bulb catalogs? Yes. Do you, okay. Yeah, but Ben England. A uh, wholesale bug. We order so many, so we order from a wholesale bulb mm. catalog. And the the great thing, I mean, my reading material often in the winter are these garden catalogs that come from all over. It's not that I order so much from them, but I learn about a new introduction or, um, and certainly over the years I've ordered from them. My garden's so established. I don't have to say I don't have that much room for new things, but I'm always looking and you know what's i always say gardening the hardest part about gardening is that it's not static you know you decorate your living room and maybe you vacuum or dust it once a week a plant's growing all the time Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you put in this tiny little thing and you know two years later it's three feet wide and you know 20 inches tall and it's so it's learning the plant's growing habits and often you have to take something away to give it the space to grow so we we don't always get it perfect um i was curious just about the logistics this is a little bit off topic but um the photography in the book i was curious how you shot it because you know it seems like you've captured your garden at the peak of i guess whatever you know time it looks best you've got some um I loved seeing like your house, your decorations for your Christmas, your holiday decor in here. Um, so how did you go about photographing? Because Well, I'll tell you, to be perfectly honest, I was not going to do this book. I mean, I had no plans to do this book. And Annie Schlechter, who is the most of the photographs are hers, came to photograph a new room we'd added to our house for Veranda Magazine. And I had not met Annie, though I actually knew her, her mother and father years ago. I had not met Annie. And Annie came, this is a breath of fresh air, and she took pictures for Veranda. But while she was there, she started just taking other pictures on her own. And when she sent me back the film or the, you know, the picture she'd taken, I all of a sudden saw my own garden in a little bit different way. And I was completely mesmerized by them. And so I asked Annie, I told her, I had this vision for this book. I wanted it to be about photographs. I didn't want, it's not really a how to do it book. It's to inspire people 
and it's detailed, so you can see the color of gravel. You can see uh, things together. I, I wanted it to be inspirational. Um, and she somehow managed to find the most, she was just an incredible photographer. And I was very lucky along while this was happening is that my niece and her husband, James Gillespie, moved up to live in our guest house during COVID. And they're still there. And James is an amazing photographer, though he designs, you know, computer systems and, and webs he designs websites. He happens to be an amateur photographer. All the single flower pictures are his. Every one of the book of a single flower, all the the, you know, their pages of the list of plants I grow, those are all his pictures. So then with Annie, I said, you know, you're gonna you have to shoot this book. For instance, she came probably one, two, three, four, maybe five times. Um, and we did the Christmas tree. We did um, the, you know, you wanted the, the garden early in the spring. Then she had to come back mid-season. Uh, then she had to come back late in the summer. Uh, she had to get the apple blossoms. And then one time we had no snow. And I said, well, I want to talk about a garden in winter. So finally it snowed and she had to stop what she's doing and rush up there to get some pictures of when the snow was on the ground. So you do have to, you can't photograph a garden in one photo shoot. I mean, you can do a house, but you certainly can't do that. So once we went through a season from spring and through winter, then I was able to have the photographs. Um, and when she would be doing the garden, I would do being doing the flowers and table settings and, you know, she would shoot the interiors and, you know, we had this plan, um, but it's and working with her and of course with James to do the um, to have him every every time a flower was in perfect bloom, he, he could rush over because he lives across the street and photograph it. Well, the photography is just gorgeous and it it really it lends an infor like an informality to some of it just because it's so accessible these beautiful full page images of just one flower yeah and just it's so lovely and the whole book all together is really such a beautiful love letter to your garden and to your family and to everyone who sh you've shared this space with i know it's um you know i i get very teary when i look at it because i i think it's a unique book i don't think most books look like this and charles mears at rizzoli when I told him what I wanted to do, he said, okay, because it's got the two prints of paper. It's got matte paper, the shiny paper. And I said, you know, I don't really want, most books have a caption on every picture. I said, I believe that people should look at this book and look at it almost as a work of art. Look at it in the details and visually take it in. And then in the back, I do take some of the pictures and write captions. And every, you know, every plant is listed. But I feel that if you're going to be creative, you're, what you really want to do is absorb as many visuals as your brain can take. And then that can translate back into creating, help, helping to create your own garden. One of the things that I just loved seeing was um, 
how organic everything is and not just obviously the plants and and the even like some of the structure and stuff but like the heart you know the like the fence that you have right. there's like a beautiful garden gate that's like you know kind of uh made out of wood and there's so much patina through all of right. the all of the surfaces and i i feel like sometimes you kind of get caught in this trap of like, oh, we have to like power wash everything. It's got to be so clean. It needs to be tidy. And so this sort of just reminded me like, okay, with certain materials and certain colors, certain paint colors, it sort of blends better into the landscape. And that not only is just beautiful, but it like kind of gives you a leg up in terms of maintaining it because it's meant to go together. I don't know if that is sort of- It's true, but every one of those decisions has to connect for instance my i have a white clabbered house so when you come to my house there's a fenced area which is kind of as you come in the back door because like a lot of houses in the country everybody parks in the courtyard so they always come in the back door that's a high maintenance white painted picket fence because it's attached to the house and it looks right we power wash it once maybe hopefully once a year and you know, it's wood, so sometimes it needs repair. But the reason it's a white picket fence, it's attached to the white clabbered house where the weathered fences are attached to barns. And to me, they're already attached to a more rustic structure. So I don't want to spray white picket fence there. And I, I made the fences out of um, boards, simple boards that have weathered over time. The one that goes around the parterre garden, which is where the conservatory is, it's weathered. Also, what I love is the fence kind of disappears because it's not white. And that's where I have a lot of climbing roses and things that are vines, clematis are growing over it. And the fence is really almost, it's a support for these plants, not a feature. You know, a white fence is a feature because you see it. And the up around the vegetable garden, that fence I recycled. I bought it from uh, an antique dealer in Maine, Bob Withington, and he rescued it from a tear down in Maine. So it's a, it was the most wonderful shaped pickets. And over the years, I've been maintaining it. I have to replace some of the pickets periodically, but it's weathered. But again, it's attached to a barn. So they, the choices of fencing and gates are deliberate to where they are in the landscape. That is, that makes so much sense. And I, but I, I could have, I could have never thought of that. That's why you are you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I kind of, I just kind of love that. And that makes so much sense. Like, you know, maybe I don't have a barn, but like if it's a fence or something like closer to the street where it's not, yeah, then maybe it's um, a little bit more aged. I I love. And also, you want to look at your own house. I mean, does your house, you know, do you have a brick house? Do you have a painted house? Because fences are kind of an extension of the house. So if it's, you know, if you have a fence, uh, you know, if you have a sidewalk and a fence, that fence should have some relationship to your house, mm -hmm. style wise, color wise, yeah. whatever. Well, I, I mean, everything is just gorgeous. Like the patina on the, the pots and the, um, the fencing and even just the, um, 
there was this beautiful like rounded bench and it just all looks like it's and i know this is intentional but it all just looks like it's grown up out of the landscape and just sort of like appeared there like some sort of you know nymph right said there should be a seating area here <laughs> that's why i love the uh, you know that that it's called faux bois furniture it's mm. you know the cement furniture that makes to look like like wood and i have like five benches in my woodland garden so when you're walking along you can sit down i i think it's very important in a big garden to have a place to stop and sit and kind of look at something so and of course the faux bois looked like the woods the trees had kind of fallen down and made mm -hmm. a bench and so i like again i like things to look look natural in wherever i paint put them there's also okay one of my favorite things was the the greek key the the chair with the greek key on the back yes that you that needs to be a product <laughs> <laughs> No, um, and then okay, we can't we can't move on to the dilemma. I'm sorry until we talk about your table settings because I did love. I mean, obviously you have a gorgeous collection for us, or I think three collections now. Um, yes, of dinnerware, um, which you know are just everyone's favorite. The way that you do your table settings are gorgeous. So maybe you could kind of talk a little bit about. Um, you know, for anyone who hasn't read the book, you and um, John's sort of entertaining, I guess, routine. He does the food, you the, ta the table. I loved hearing about that. As John says, go do a tablescape. Um, John John grew up, he was the youngest of 14 children. He's just a natural cook. I mean, absolute, totally natural cook. And he loves to cook. That's his hobby. You know, some men go play golf. He likes to cook. And I love to set the table. And in the summer when you've got all the flowers to cut from and you know i as you there's a picture of all my indian tablecloths i mean you know you half my tablecloths i think i bought at pure imports they're indian bedspreads you get a twin size you know if you have a narrow table you use twin long twin size ones if you have round to big round table you get a king size bedspread and so you know i i just buy those whenever i see them I think that, um, you know, a lot of people, they're safe and they buy white china or a neutral china. But then I think you should pick a color palette and put with it. You know, you can, if you like blue and white, I mean, the blue and white I do for Ballard is, you know, is wonderful. I have it here in the office. Um, I just, I did a, a pinky red line. And then you can kind of always add to it in the same color. And then you can mix things up, which, you know, I've got antique blue and white plates. I've got Christopher's Bit Miller ones. I've got Ballard ones. But because they're all blue and white, they mix together fabulously. And if I've got, you know, I, I, I tend not to like a dinner service. So I like a dinner plate and then I like the dessert plate to be on a different plate. I've got soup plates. So it, and that's what makes it fun to set the table, um, that you've got. I mean, unfortunately, I'm, I have a problem. I buy too much china. I love it, but I do get great pleasure out of setting a tape. Well, I have to say, we, you, years and years ago, I think when we first launched your initial um, dinnerware collection, you did some videos where you did a flower arrangement, you set the table, and I highly suggest everyone go watch those videos on YouTube because I 
learned so much from them. I also love tables don't have quite the, not quite at the level you do, but so I just, I gained so much from watching those and they're so helpful. And it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to, I mean, if you're prepared, if you have what you want, you can set a table fairly quickly. Probably the longest thing is going to be doing whatever you put in the middle. Um, but you, you know, it's just having it, having it organized and, and it's fun. And I do think, you know, is as good a cook as John is. I think people who sit down to a beautiful table, frankly, you can serve them takeout food because it, you've made this effort. You know, uh, in New York, we don't have time to cook so much. And I get, you know, I pick up food, but I'll set a pretty table, even though the food I picked up, you know, takeout on the way home. Can I ask you a question real quick, just because... Um... I had this dilemma at Christmas and I didn't have an expert to call on and I feel like you would have an opinion. Um, okay, I have an oval table. It is yes. so challenging to find tablecloths and I'm curious what you do with an oval table. Do you use a rectangular tablecloth? Yes. Okay. See, I don't think round tables have to have round tablecloths. Okay. I like to use, I would use like a queen size tablecloth and then the points kind of hang down. I don't think, I actually... Like even on a round table, I use square claws because I like the point hanging down. I have a round dining room table, but sometimes it is an oval because it has leaves. So I, you know, when we have 12 people, I have to have the leaves and it becomes an oval. And I just use a longer uh, tablecloth. Okay. That, but it, it kind of, it's pretty the way the points hang down to the floor. Okay, I I felt like I'm certainly overthinking this and right. like it's impossible to find an oval tablecloth. Right. So yeah. that's my answer. And it'll never be the right size. So <laughs> yeah. so may as well not even. Right. Yeah. All right, Liz, do you have any final questions we need to answer? I don't. I just want to say thank you for this book because it it it's the time of year and it's it's, you know, getting ready for gardens. And this book could not have come at mm -hmm. a better time. And there's just so much hope and so much life in this book. It's really beautiful. I um, also, the, the, um, the last piece of the book, which is, makes me cry every time I read it. I have my nephew, Carter Blackwell, who's come to the house since he was a tiny baby. And now he got married there. That's in the book. And um, his, um, they come every Christmas. He's got two girls. And he writes about growing up in that house and coming there as a child. And it's a very, he's a beautiful writer. And it's a very moving piece that I think kind of sums up why I care so much about this property and the garden and the house. It was a beautiful tribute. And I also just have to say, I reading this book was like, I think I'm gonna have to give this to my mother for Mother's Day. So <laughs> for anyone else who's looking for an early Mother's Day gift idea, this would be an excellent one. So. Okay, we do have a question from Wendy, and I'm going to read it. It's a little bit long, but um, Bunny, Wendy, you're awfully lucky because Bunny is going to help you answer your question. Okay, here goes. Hello, all. We recently bought a 1980s lake house and would love to get your design advice. Except for the living room, it's a real hodgepodge with lots of dated finishes and some floor plan issues. My goal is cozy and relaxed, nothing fancy. We'll be here during summer and winter. 
The center area, which is open to the upper level, was the main living space until former owners added the living room. Though the area is too big to be just a pass-through, there's no need to furnish it as a real room. Also, we like seeing the wood-burning stove from the living room and don't want to block that with anything bulky. Thinking chairs or small benches can be pulled up to sit by the fire or pushed aside in the summer. And what about a rug? Is it odd to have a big room-sized rug if there's not much furniture to anchor it? Do I even need a rug? The area is not as expansive as the pictures make it look. The dining area could definitely use a rug as well as a new light fixture. The far end has a built-in window seat and our table is four feet wide by eight feet long. Because the table is pulled up to the window seat, the light fixture won't be centered on the table. It's centered on the door to the porch. Is a flush mount a better option in this case? And if so, um, will the off-center position be less obvious? The kitchen and back hall lighting is very harsh and institutional. It's probably my biggest priority. There are three large fluorescent lights in the hallway and laundry room, and the kitchen's main fixture is especially clunky. What do you suggest? There are a few recessed cans in the kitchen already. I'm not interested in adding more. Um, I'd also like to paint the back hall and laundry rooms a richer color, maybe a deep green. Should the back door be green too, or possibly black? Um, yeah, okay, so should she paint the door in addition to the walls? Um, I plan to replace the ancient fridge with a stainless steel one after I paint. Finally, do you have experience with solar shades? The huge window in the living room lets in a lot of heat. And with no AC, we need to put cellular shades down on summer days, blocking our light view. Um, sincere thanks for your advice. I've learned so much from you and your wonderful guests. Can't wait to hear your ideas. Best, Wendy. So she has... Um, I mean, it's, it's a great place. She has sort of a vaulted ceiling, um, you know, beautiful views. Bunny, what is your first sort of instinct for her? Um, well, this, sitting room, my first instinct is going to be horrifying because if it were my house, I would leave, I would leave all the wooden ceilings and the beams, but I would paint a lot of the what I find complicated is there, there are all these different, there's wood, there's plaster, there's brick. Mm. They, they, it's complicated. The space is made complicated by these different materials. Mm -hmm. If it were my house, I would paint, like looking at the fireplace, I'd paint that brick white. I would paint, keep it light. And then the, there's a cupboard next to the fireplace. I would paint that out so that it, it, the, the room becomes less busy mm -hmm. to me. I think the wooden ceilings are wonderful. Um, and the obviously you have this great view. I assume it's a view over the lake. But what happens in this house is that there's a little bit of wood. There's a little bit of plaster. So it becomes very choppy. And I would paint more of it light. She asked about the center space, which when I looked at the plan, of course, it was mine. I would... I would make it cozy too. I mean, um, but I think you could put, um, I do think it would be nice to have a rug. Um, she was saying that she liked to see the fireplace from the living room, but my, my instinct would be either to put a pair of maybe pretty wing chairs on either side of the fireplace with a bench, or you could put a, in the middle of that open area, you could almost do like a big round, low upholstered ottoman, something that, you know, you could sit on, but it would, you've got to connect the two spaces a little bit. You've got to make them seem more together. Um, if you, you could have a big round table in the middle of the room, but that might block your fireplace. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I definitely think two nice, you know, high back chairs with a, a bench in front of the fireplace and even something in the center, like, you know, you see a lot of times, you know, a four foot round, 40 inch round ottoman that could just give mm. some interest to the middle of that space. Pretty. The other thing that I question is she has the dining room table against the window seat. And I wonder why. I mean, I, if it was mine, I would tend to pull the table out and put it in the middle of the room and use the window seat, you know, to sit in and read a book. But when you're dining, I think the, the room, the space would look better if the table were in the middle of the room. And then I would have a, a flush mount ceiling fixture. And, you know, in the, she was talking about the back hall where she wanted to, where there were, uh, I think, fluorescent lights. I would just put, um, I would take those down and put, you know, very good looking ceiling mount fixtures there. Uh, Hudson Valley has them. I think Ballard has some wonderful, um, just flush mount ceiling fixtures. Um, again, the, the, one of the things that happens is that she wants to paint that a color, but you're, you're always got these, you've got all these doors, all this trim. And if you, you know, you're, I think if you're going to paint that a color, I would tend to paint it almost like a, a very soft, sagey green, not too bright a color because you've got that gray stone floor. And then you could take down those fluorescent lights and put up, um, you know, like a wrought iron uh, incandescent light. So are you saying she should paint like the louvered doors, um, the wall color or leave them wood? Um, when you, wh where are you talking about them? They're the, it looks like there's some sort of like louvered, like closet doors, like bifold doors in that hallway. She might want to keep them in wood because they'll be more practical. Okay. I mean, I would paint them out because I find it, I find there's this, all this wood and the plaster, uh, but the wood doors in the hallway, it might be more practical just for chipping. Where I okay. would paint more is in when you come in, particularly the area where the fireplace is. I mean, I find this red, red brick with the bright grout color. And, you know, I just imagine if that was all light, mm -hmm. um, I think it would lighten up the room and let the wood be on up high in the beams and the ceiling. Okay. An interesting thing that she said that I, is, I don't know, something that I feel like I've picked up um, is, you know, people often think like, oh, okay, if I put chairs in front of the fireplace, it's going to block the fireplace. When in reality, if you put chairs in an ottoman on that fireplace, that's going to draw your attention to the fireplace. So totally. it sort of seems counterintuitive, but really it's going to make it more of a focal point than less of a focal point. And also, I think you want to use that space. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, if you have the living room isn't that big. If you had some overflow people and say you had two chairs by the fireplace with a bench in between, you know, maybe two people would go sit over there. You know, if you really wanted to do something, you could have two small sofas coming out from that fireplace with a coffee table in front of it. So you make that an additional seating area. Mm -hmm. I don't know how big her family is, but but I, I think it's, you know, it's that space is bigger than the living room, practically. And 
it definitely needs to be thought of as a place that's warm and and connecting a little bit more to the living room. Uh, she asked the question about whether she should put a rug in that area. I and, would. Okay. So should she do like a, you know, a pretty big rug? Yeah, I would like do a, a big rug, but okay. I would do it in, I would do it in like a wool sisal, something simple. Okay. It, I don't know. I couldn't tell what the rug in her living room was. It looks sort um, of red and blue, like yeah, oriental. But I yeah, it looks like an oriental, but I wouldn't do another oriental. I would do okay. something simple like, you know, a sisal carpet, a wool sisal carpet, and then have, you know, this big ottoman in the middle or a big round covered table, mm -hmm. uh, which she might think would block. But imagine if you had that and you had books stacked on it and, you know, you could do flowers in the middle. So it it almost becomes living entrance hall. It, mm -hmm. It's really not being utilized at all. Yeah. Those are two great ideas. Both would be very pretty depending on, you know how she wants to use the space. Okay. Well, Wendy, you have a, you have a gorgeous, um, you know, you have a beautiful house. So it's, Oh, it's great. It's fabulous. Yeah. And it's got, a, it, it's really wonderful. I mean, it's open. It's fantastic. You know, that when I look at her living room, it looks like there's a sofa and two chairs. So having some more seating in that area mm -hmm. might be kind of great. Mm-hmm. Well, Bunny, we can't thank you enough. Obviously, we, I mean, I also just always tell people all the time to go back and listen to your previous episodes you've done with us because yourself, such a wealth of knowledge and so um, generous with your knowledge and always give such great advice and decorating insight. Um, so we just always appreciate you, you coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me and I've enjoyed it. And I hope everybody will enjoy the book. It's very... It's a very meaningful book to me. I think it's it's exciting. It's different. You know, a friend was here today and he said, I just can keep going back and look at this book and look at this book and look at this book. And that's mm -hmm. what I want people to do is to go back to it over and over again and to really try to absorb the visuals mm -hmm. that they can then take on to their own life. Yes. And it's Life in the Garden and it comes out March 5th from Rizzoli. So I'm sure they and can, can pre-order it now. No, they may ship it sooner. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, okay. You know, sometimes they say that's its pub date, but if you pre-order, if they come in, they'll ship them. Okay. Yeah. That's a great tip. Okay. Well, um, can you tell everyone where they can find you? They can find, uh, I guess it's William, William Lawrence, Williams Lawrence. Yes. And, um, your Instagram is bunny's eye. Funny side, that's it. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. You're so welcome. And that's our show. You can find all of the show notes on our blog, howtodecorate.com slash podcast. To send in a decorating dilemma, email your questions to podcast at ballarddesigns.net so we can help you with your space. And of course, be sure to follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time, happy, happy decorating! decorating.